From the team at CTS, this is the Train Ride Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. This podcast episode is brought to you by ESI Grips. As coaches here at CTS, we spend many hours on the bike working with athletes at training camps, making the equipment we use extremely important. We need equipment that's high quality and built to last. That's why we ride with ESI Grips. Their RCT wrap and mountain bike grips are made in the USA and provide us with superior comfort, grip, and durability that we depend on. We've put ESI grips through the test on long switchback descents, roads riddled with potholes, rough gravel races, and techie Colorado mountain bike single track. And there's just no question, they are the best. You always have grip when you need it, cushion to your comfort, and you get to just enjoy the ride that much more. Gary and Maria, our friends and owners of ESI Grips, are giving you 35% off your next order with coupon code TRAINRIGHT. Head over to ESIGrips.com to get your discount and see why we love their grips so much. This episode of the TRAINRIGHT podcast is brought to you by Stages Cycling, the industry leader in accurate, reliable, and proven power meters and training devices. Stages Cycling offers the widest range of power meter makes and models to fit any bike, any drivetrain, and any rider. They're all manufactured in their Boulder, Colorado facility, and they've expanded their offerings to include the Stages Dash line of innovative and intuitive GPS cycling computers covering a full range of training and workout-specific features to make your workouts go as smooth as possible. And now Stages is applying its decade of indoor cycling studio expertise with the new Stages Bike Smart Trainer. Check it all out at www.stagescycling.com. This episode of the TrainRight podcast is brought to you by the CTS TrainRight membership. The TrainRight membership helps you get the most out of your limited training time so that you can improve your performance and achieve your athletic goals. With the membership, you get access to science-based training plans, an 800-plus workout library, and an app to track your progress, along with advice from professional coaches via an online private form. Go to trainright.com backslash membership to learn where to start and use code TRAINRIGHT for a free 14-day trial. Again, that's code TRAINRIGHT in all capital letters for a free 14-day trial. I was able to catch up with Corinne Rivera two days before La Course, the women's Tour de France. It was late in the evening after a 10-hour drive, but she made time to get on the computer and do this podcast. That's pretty amazing, since she had a ton of other things to focus on, probably had a lot of excuses that she could have had instead of doing this podcast. But it speaks to how she approaches life. If she's committed, she's doing it. And she's going to do it great. This podcast, that race, the Olympics, she values greatness and getting the job done. She's a team player, but she'll go for the win if it's right there and part of the plan. I suggest searching for her name on other podcasts too, because over the past few years, she's been on several, and they're all a little different, but the consistent message is excellence and winning on the bike. And this interview is no different, but it is one of her best, I'm pretty sure. 
So turn up that volume and settle in for a good hour of listening to one of the most successful women's road cyclists that the U.S. is sending to the Tokyo Olympic Games. Welcome back or welcome to the Train Right Podcast. Coach Adam here, your host as always. And today we've got probably the most decorated and accomplished riders we've ever had on the show. Corinne Rivera. She has over 17, or 17, <laughs> 17 in college. You have over 72 national championships uh, to her name between road, track, mountain bike, and cyclocross. And she's a world champion. She's the winner of the 2017 Tour of Flanders, which no U.S. rider, man or woman, had ever done before. She's a vicious rider on the bike, great human being overall. And man, she can shred the gnar on the mountain bike. So Corinne, it's an honor. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, today, you know, we'll talk about the specifics of how you and your coach uh, have navigated the pandemic challenges and how uh, you've been preparing for uh, the environmental conditions coming up in Tokyo. But first, let's learn more about you. Uh, first of all, like, like, where are you coming from today? Where are you at? Uh, I'm currently in Rennes, France. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that pronouncing that correctly, but um it's uh in like the britannia area and we're kind of on the way to uh brest which is where stage one will start of the tour de france and we left uh the netherlands this morning at about 7 seven thirty, and got here about five so had a long day in the bus and uh do the last couple hours tomorrow morning yeah make the push uh that's a big that's a big drive for sure. And, um, we were, we were texting Very just good. before this, we were actually supposed to start <laughs> a little sooner, but we had some, uh, some, we'll just call it rain delays. But, uh, so thank you for, again, taking the, taking the time to be with us. For sure. Thanks for being flexible. Uh, yeah, no, totally, totally. So, uh, you mentioned the tour, um, we have Tokyo coming up, but, uh, what is that next race that you have coming up? Women's tour. Um, so for this year, uh, the women's tour de France, also known as La Course nowadays, um, will just be one, one day on Saturday, um, and we'll get going before the men finish. So we'll be in the morning. Um, it's about a hundred K or so. Um, and we do a big lap and then some smaller laps around, uh, like a famous climb here in Britannia. That's about three K long with an uphill finish. Um, and then next year there should be, uh, like an eight day women's tour de France. So moving on up, pretty excited and, uh, exactly. yeah, looking to have a good race. Cool. Cool. Well, well, good luck to you on that. And, and, you know, again, uh, being at, uh, you know, the top of the world stage, you know, for a number of years and also, um, an Olympic selection for the U S I mean, uh, you're there, but how did you get there? Like, where did this, where did this all start? Where do you call home and how did you start riding bikes? So home for me is Orange County, California. Um, was born in like Garden Grove, but kind of grew up in Tustin. And then um, I was actually really into soccer when I was a lot younger. Uh, played AYSO and then moved into to club soccer. And then my dad was always on some set of wheels. Um, when I was a baby, he raced motocross and then he went into downhill mountain biking and then got hurt and then went into normal mountain biking and then got hurt and then finally kind of settled in on the road bike. And then he got a tandem with my mom, um, right about the time when I was into soccer. And then I, I think got big enough where I could try being on the back of the tandem did like Palm spring century with my dad on the back. And 
I remember like falling asleep on his back, like as a little nine-year-old doing a century, <laughs> no big deal. Now that I think about it, um, that's actually pretty impressive. But back then I was like, yeah, whatever, just riding. Um, but uh, and then eventually I grew big enough to kind of have my own bike. And then um, it was actually a mountain bike frame with drop bars and slick tires because I was so little, like I couldn't, we couldn't find a bike where I could just stand over. Um, so that was like our little ghetto set uh, setup, and then um, grew again and actually got like you... a. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, how, how old were you when you had the the ghetto setup? Um, I had to be nine, I think, something like that. Yeah nine or yeah. ten okay and then uh yeah eventually got like a 650 actual road bike it was like a cannondale and still have it to this day um it was just like a raw aluminum and we like buffed it out and got it real shiny and turned it into like a single speed little townie um i can still fit it so if that's any indication that i really haven't grown much uh it's there <laughs> and then um actually one of my dad's friends so we used to like ride on the on the weekends like a a friend's group ride and then, you know, have coffee and bagels somewhere. Um, and one of my dad's friends was like, Hey, you know, there's this kid's race in Redlands. Uh, if you win, I'll give you 20 bucks. And I was like, all right, cool. That sounds fun. And, um, I've just always been really athletic and competitive. So I'm always up for a challenge and, uh, went there and my dad had just come back from the tour de France. So he brought home, um, like this aqua Saponi kit uh, the Cipollini like zebra one. Yeah. So I like yeah, roll up totally. to this kid's race with like this decked out, like zebra kit <laughs> with like my little reading glasses. Cause I wore glasses when I was a kid and then, um, yeah, I crushed it. It was like one lap of the crit and took off, uh, at the start line, never looked back and won by a bunch. And then did the same thing of riding with my dad and his friends, um, on the weekends, and then that same race came back around, um, I guess it was 2004. And he was like, yeah, if you win that race again, I'll give you another 20 bucks. And I was like, sweet, let's do it again. And then like I had a trainer and we were prepared and like I had a warm up and it was still one lap. <laughs> um, and then I won it again. And then I was I was still excited, but I was also like, all right, I, I can't wait every year for this one race. So I was like, there's got to be more. There's got to be something else out there. So that's where we found um, the racing license and the junior gears race the next weekend at like LA circuit raced against the boys. Um, and I got second and cried because I'm, I think just a natural born winner and just hate losing. So um, was like in tears during junior gear rollout. Um, and then the next weekend I, I beat, beat the boys and then the rest is honestly history. And then we go to state championships and national championships and, taking me through college and everything. And, uh, yeah, did you, did you keep wearing the same Jersey? <laughs> I'd say for about a year, I wore that kit until we like started getting more kit. Cause I was riding so much. Um, yeah, actually yeah. funny story. One time I was on my dad's wheel and I was like getting kind of cracked and kind of crossed wheels a little bit. And, uh, I don't know if he crashed me or I crashed myself, but crossed wheels and I, I crashed on my, my zebra kit and luckily my little heart rate strap kind of like saved my chest and there's like a little hole <laughs> right under the zipper. Oh, yeah, I was totally fine, but I think that heart rate strap like, and I just like kind of bowed out a little bit, but that heart rate strap kind of saved me. <laughs> 
So there's a little little hole right in the front of that kit. I still have it. Oh man, that's that is crazy. That's a funny story for sure. Saved by the heart rate strap. Yeah. Uh, well, in your you're a Filipina American. Uh, tell me, I mean, did everybody ride bikes in your family? Tell tell me more about like family, cousins, like the upbringing. Yeah, honestly, biking was just between like my dad and I for the most part. Um yeah. my dad is like crazy. I think he was always into stuff that most others wouldn't do. So like he was really into motocross and stuff and and racing and um going off-road and everything. So I think it was really within my immediate family. Um but really no one else in my family cycles. So it just really came between us. Um, and yeah, some of my family like try to ride, um, but really not, not to the level that, that, uh, I do. So we, (laughs) I tried to take some of my cousins out for like an hour and a half, which is normally my hour and a half spin loop. And it took us like three hours. So it was fun, but that's, uh, (laughs) I think I'm on a, we're, we're uh, looking at things differently. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I mean, just with, uh, you know, I know your dad, your mom, I mean, it sounds like a very supportive, um, community right away had plenty of opportunity from an early age and, and, uh, uh, started racing really young. Um, so how old were you when you started just beating the boys at, at some of the more local races? I was about 11 years old at that time. About 11. Yeah. Gotcha. And what was, um, what was, what was training like in between races when you were a junior? Were, was your dad just saying, you know, go out and ride your bike and have fun? Or were you doing like hardcore intervals or like, tell us, tell our listeners a little <laughs> bit more of like what the junior development was like. Yeah. I think starting out, it was mostly like those group rides on the weekends going out for longer rides. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we got into racing and everything, um, my dad always takes everything next level. So he did like a lot of reading and he was actually kind of like my first coach. Um, and yeah, we like, we, we were doing some intervals and kind of basically, I mean, my dad's not really like a, a coach coach, but we kind of figured it out and it was like, you know, what are, what are the races and what are the goals? And then what are the demands of those, those races? And then how can we like kind of replicate and train that? So you know, I used to do this road that was like kind of similar to like a nationals TT course. And then I just go do that uh, a few times. And then, um, yeah, like a certain length of climb at the similar gradient or something, and then do repeats of that. Um, once I was a little bit older, like 13, 14, 15, I got into track cycling. Um, and so that put a little more structure in and I was working with a guy named Tim Roach, who was really good with the, the juniors in the area back then and we would go to the track Mondays and Wednesdays something like that and then I think it was like Thursdays and Fridays or no Thursdays Tuesdays and Thursdays we would go to GMR and go do like mm-hmm. hill repeats and then Friday was like a rest day and then we would like do races on the weekends so that also like put a little put a little structure into it but I mean we were all kind of just doing whatever until I was probably maybe 15 and I got like a little more serious coach Um, but that's just kind of how we prepared. And then it was always like training after school. Um, so always in the afternoons and then going out to the races on the weekends. And then over summer, it was like a trip to, um, to national championships and stuff. So, um, that was like my, my teen years, I guess. 
And then, um, yeah, then, then as I got a bit older, then it became more serious and was more structured training and everything. Yeah. What, um, at what point did, were you like, I, I could do this as a professional athlete. I could do this around the world as my, my thing. Like what age was that starting to like come into your mind? Probably 17, 18. I was thinking like, you know, when those there's opportunities to go in Europe and then also junior worlds. And then you do some of the bigger races. Cause when you're 18, um, you can get into some UCI races, um, while on junior gears. So it's like extra hard. But, um, yeah, I think it was kind of an eye opener, like to go to Europe a few times and kind of see like what it could be. Um, and then also like when I was 15 and 16, it was just like a big dreamer. Like I loved watching the races, love watching tour de France and thinking like, Oh, how sick would it be to win on the Champs-Élysées? Like with all my other friends. Um, so like I always had it in my head and I think, yeah, when I set my mind to something, like I'll, I'm just gonna go all the way and I won't stop. Um, so that's just kind of in me to, to accomplish what I what I want. Um, so, but yeah, I'd say about 17 to 18 is when I really thought, like, okay, I, this is what this is what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. Yeah, and that was, I mean, you're kind of pioneering a little bit of you know the women's field back then too, in terms of like doing that at such a young age as well I mean, that, that wasn't really a thing yeah, I mean, totally they, you know there were probably people watching those races doing those things but not winning all the national championships and not like going for it like you did yeah totally and and when you think about it too i think historically a lot of the successful u.s women kind of found the sport later in life um mm-hmm. like after college um and i've done this since I was nine. So this is really the back of my hand kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I just love racing. Like when I'm racing, I'm kind of in my zone and my element and like, I'm not scared of anything. And I just feel like I, that's where I belong. So, um, yeah. so yeah, really unique. And, and, you know, just that uh, the developmental age, I mean, I, I, my mind goes to Anders Ericsson's, um, peak performance concept and where this is where Malcolm Gladwell got the uh, wrote about the 10,000 hour principle of becoming an expert in that field, um, right around 10,000 hours of, of experiential, uh, kind of performance. And, you know, for most of our U S women's riders, like you said, uh, they kind of take to it later on in life. You had it way earlier, which is why like at 18, not only could you (laughs) have all the dreams, but you were actually there at the world stage doing what you're doing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, That's totally. Cool. <laughs> um, so I know that, and you've mentioned this on podcasts and other articles too, but like uh, 2011, I think it was, you were mm-hmm. at a big race, Tour of Qatar, and that that kind of changed your trajectory from being kind of world tour bound to something else. Can you describe to our listeners what that was like? Yeah, totally. I... Um... So my last two years of high school, I switched to like a online program and I could uh, do everything remote. And I took classes over the summer and I graduated a semester early. So I had the whole spring free. Um, And that was in 2011. And my plan was just to race um, as much as I could in Europe and kind of get my feet, feet wet and like really, yeah, figure out 
you know, what are my next steps in the sport? And um, the year before in 2010, I medaled um, at Junior Worlds on the track and also on the road race. So had a pretty successful junior career, um, closed it out well, and then um, had some pretty good offers to go to a big team, but held off so that I could have kind of a, a year to grow. And uh, in the end, kind of, I think, glad that I did because uh, the tour guitar right away, like in the beginning of the year, um, had a really bad crash in the last stage um, in the sprint. And yeah, I was knocked out. Don't remember anything. I woke up in a CT scan with both my contacts out and my bike was broken. Um, and then I had to get like stitches on the top of my head and had like um, some scarring on my upper lip and like close to my eye. Um, so like pretty, pretty bad crash. And then I had to stay in Qatar for a couple extra days before I could fly home, which is a miserable flight home of 16 hours. Um, but yeah, it was then when I thought, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, it was in that whole situation where I thought like, Oh, you know, maybe I should go to school. Like this could be over really fast. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah also thought that the dream could be over very quickly as well. So kind of preparing for that. Um, So then I started looking at schools and then um, uh, Marion approached me about going to to their program. And I thought it would, would be a good place for me to like continue racing and also get my education. So that was the, the route I took instead of going directly to, which then was like the world cup circuit. Yeah. Yeah. For, for our listeners who don't know Marion university, could you describe like that community there as it pertains to not only like scholastics, but also bike racing? Yeah. So Marion university is a smaller liberal arts school in Indianapolis. Um, but, uh, and they're NAIA for most of your typical, uh, ball sports and, uh, collegiate sports. Um, but they also have a pretty good cycling program there. Um, and down the street, we have a velodrome and a BMX track um, and also like a cyclocross track around both of those, um, both uh, the track and the and the BMX track. So and there's actually some pretty good road riding when you go south and and actually pretty decent mountain biking down in Brown County. So a little bit of everything there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, one of the country's best cycling programs. So um I'm a California girl, so it was a little bit hard to make that decision, but uh, I actually have a sister that lived uh, out in the suburbs there. So it actually turned out really great for me. And uh, yeah, probably one of the more important times of my life and also the more fun times of my life. So wouldn't change a, change a thing there. Really appreciate my, my time there in Indy. Yeah, that's it. I mean, they not only do they just pump out national champion after national champion, but it's like the community there and, and what they, um, and, and they cultivate fun in, in doing it. And it's, I, I co- have coached a few riders that have come out of that, uh, that program. And it's, I mean, nothing, but nothing but awesomeness coming out of there for sure, which is why I wanted to mention it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think they do a really good job about keeping it balanced and keeping it fun, but still, you know, doing your best in whatever it is that you do and, and yeah. supporting, supporting that. Yeah. During that, during that collegiate time though, I mean, could you speak to some of the training uh, that you were doing there and, and did it change um, from where you were just before Qatar? 
Like what did Marion kind of teach you in the training process? Um, yeah, I don't know if it's Marion specifically, but more like my situation is like, I tried to keep, uh, racing at a high level plus racing collegiate, you know, plus like figuring everything out on my own for the first time. So my freshman year was like, you know, I mean, I'm racing for Marion. I'm racing for the national team. I'm racing for my trade team and just trying to keep all the plates spinning in the air. And, um, eventually they, they fall and, um, yeah, I actually thought about quitting for a little while. So I stopped riding for like eight months. And um, I was like, I think in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna go to like London or something. And then it was all just happening. And I didn't realize like, why wasn't I going to London Olympics? And then I don't, everything just went started falling down. And then there was just a day where I was like, why am I, why am I even riding? Like, I didn't have a reason to ride. Mm-hmm. So then I just stopped for a little while. Um and then it was good to have that break. But then of course, like I was on scholarship and at some point, like, yeah, I was either going to get back to writing and keep my scholarship or that was going to change. So it was uh, like a little bit of motivation and I was like, well, I'll, I'll try and get back in with the cyclocross season. It's fun. Um, it's like a short season as well. So that's where I got back into it. My sophomore year it was. Um, and then it became like riding and training, like with a purpose, like to, to enjoy it because like to do it because that's what I wanted to do, not to do it because someone was telling me to do it. So I think that was probably like the biggest, uh, learning lesson out of that whole time period is, uh, yeah. Like why, why, why do you do this? Like there, I think should always be a reason to do it. And so I kind of learned that. And then I was getting back into riding. I was like, oh yeah. I actually really do like this stuff and, but I just have to remember why it is that I do it. So, um, yeah, it was good to have a little break there and yeah, luckily I I fell back in love with the writing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Has that, has that why or that purpose, has that changed since then or is it found Um, a steady state? I think it's just found a steady state. Like I just realized that, I am really good at it. I I do really love it. And I really do love racing and working hard and in training and, and uh, yeah, just being like the best version of myself. I think I really enjoy doing that and um, just being prepared for an event. Like, um, I don't know. There's something that I, that I really like about doing that, being prepared for something. So, um, but at the end, I just really love riding like the places it takes me and, you know, what it allows me to do and on the people I meet, I think it's a, just a really cool thing. Yeah. uh, Agreed. And I think, you know, anyone listening to this podcast, anybody who's ever done a competitive thing, when, when, when you're fit and you're equipped for the challenge at hand, I mean, that's, that's when flow happens, man. Like, yeah, that's the it's pretty factor. sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, so you're, you're a sprinter, um, and we're, I, I should say this. Could you describe your uh, <laughs> riding style for our listeners? Because call yeah. you a sprinter and you're kind of ferocious at it, but tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that. Yeah. I'm not a fan of labels. So yeah. um, most people call Label me a sprinter. Yep. Yeah. For for me, I, I'm just a bike racer. I think if you put a finish line in front, um, I'm just going to figure out how what's best for me to get there first or, or how I can beat everyone else to get there first. Um, so yeah, typically I've won in, 
a sprint fashion. Um, it is kind of my, my strength, um, my sprint and my jump. Um, but I think I am strong and light enough to get over some of the harder stages. Um, I've won in breaks before as well. So, um, I've, I think I've like podiumed at prologue. So not to say I, I am definitely not a time trialist, but <laughs> I can ride alone for a little while. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, yeah, you put a finish line in front of me and I'll, I'll figure it out. I'm a bike racer. Yeah, exactly. A gritty bike racer. And I think that, you know, if you put somebody gritty, you know, in like that, whether it is a, a kind of a sprint or a high risk situation, you'll find that line. Um, mm-hmm. and then that, that's exactly what you do. And in order to like getting back to that preparation, what kind of like big training blocks do you find you need personally to like prepare you best for, uh, that kind of gritty situation to, to race? And I know that that's a kind of a loaded question because it's, you know, whether it's a stage race or one day or, or climbing or whatever, but like what kind of prepares you best for any race situation? Um, I think when I'm really trying to peak at a certain time of the year, I think altitude has been really responsive for me. Um, I've just kind of noticed in the past and then, you know, for my last few years, I really didn't do much altitude and it was just okay. Um, but I found that Mm -hmm. like my body can really handle that stress well and adapts and responds really well to that. And I normally come out the other end, just rolling. So, um, I do love a good, good altitude camp. Gotcha. When you're up there, is it a bunch of, is it a bunch of climbing? Is it a bunch of like threshold work? Is it, uh, what's the intensity while you're up at altitude? Uh, I think it kind of depends a little bit on what the goal is. Um, Mm. but, uh, yeah, normally the first week or so is like pretty, pretty relaxed. And normally at some point I, I find, you know, where my balance is, um, I'll like get close to cracking and be like, okay, I need to don't break it, bring it down a notch. And I think that's all part of the uh, like kind of adapting phase of the first couple of weeks in, in altitude. Um, and then after that, um, at least at this last block, I did a lot of 40 twenties, uh, a lot of 10 minutes, um, a couple 30 minutes stuff, a uh, handful of five minute things. So um, kind of all, all over the place. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, more, uh, more intense efforts and was that all like in preparation for tokyo or was that primarily for coming into nationals or um what was that kind of like specific to and we'll get into the specifics of tokyo here in in probably just a few minutes but um i know you had come off the altitude coming into knoxville but um tell us a little bit more about the timing of that if you can yeah um i think the main thing is that i didn't have racing in may personally so that left a big window to do um a nice altitude block um but yeah definitely the olympics and the giro and la course like this whole period of of racing is a pretty important part of the season um and of course we're gambling a little bit with making uh the games so but uh, i think coming off of this altitude camp and then getting through Jiro, I think would be a really kind of great two-step going into Tokyo um, with about like two weeks in between. So I think um, it was kind of like this whole period that we were kind of aiming for, but it all kind of, it all helps each other towards Tokyo. So 
and uh, also did some heat heat prep at altitude camp as well and knoxville obviously also was really warm so it all kind of flows together for for tokyo i'd say yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's kind of my point that I want that I was kind of trying to titrate out a little bit is like when you're doing that altitude and when you're doing that, that preparation, you really need to do it before at a low risk situation before the athlete needs to prepare, right? Cause you want the plasma volume expansion. You want, you want the right, cause you really can't go hard up there. Your intensity can't really exist up there w- without uh, serious detriments. So, and I think right. you probably did some, um, uh, hyperoxic training too. Um, when you're up at altitude, probably had to, um, get into a chamber and do some efforts at sea level. Am I correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, and hopefully, yeah, you just want to do that before the athlete, uh, comes into that race preparation time period. And that, that was kind of my point in, in doing that. So, um, yeah. And I'd say, uh, you know, coach has the process and, uh, definitely dialed in on that for sure as he head to Tokyo. Yeah, yeah definitely. And then, uh, yeah, I had a good session in the O2 room and like had it as low as it could go. Not, uh, not like a Tokyo specific, just to have a fully oxygen, oxygenated session. <laughs> um, and it was just like, yeah, basically five by five. So all out, um, and just kind of see, see where I'm at there. So that was a, a nice, nice workout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're kind of bouncing all over the place, but since we're on Tokyo and kind of swinging back there, um, has, you mentioned London, has the Olympic dream always been inside you? To- yeah. hundred percent. Even since yeah. I was a kid, when I played soccer, like I wanted to make the U S women's team and everything and would always watch the, the games on TV every summer. So yeah, it was a, it was a big, big thing for me. So how did, how did it feel when, when you got word of that here at the first part of June? Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It was a great day. Um, also like kind of a funny day. Um, I had planned, I was in Boulder for my altitude camp. So I had planned on riding with Ruth Winder. Um, and I rode down the hill from Netherland down into Boulder and there's obviously no cell service there. And I get a little lost finding where I was going to meet her and I was a little bit late. So I rolled up to her and I was like, Oh dude, I'm so sorry. Like I kind of got lost. Like I thought, you know, you live the other way. And then she was like, you should call Jeff. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, well, is it good news or, or what? And she just kind of smiled at me and I was like, I was like, dude, yes. And then I was like, wait, don't get too excited. I need to call him first. And then I looked at my phone. And I was like, I don't have any missed calls from this guy. I don't have voicemail anything she was like just call him and I was like okay I'll call Jeff and then uh called him back and then um yeah he told me that I had made the team and it was just a cool moment uh, a lot of emotions and then also Ruth was there and she obviously made the team as well so yep. we could enjoy the day together and we were going to go for a four-hour ride um so yeah it was it was just a cool moment and for us to be together and and luckily we both made the team so it wasn't an awkward ride um, and then we kind of went into the day with a, a little extra motivation. Um, and I had a bunch of efforts and I think she only had endurance writing. So what's funny about the day is that I was just crushing these efforts, like going, you know, I had a little extra juice in me that day, but, uh, in between, uh, Ruth was like kind of writing endurance. So like, I wasn't really recovering fully between efforts. 
Mm-hmm. And by the end, I had blown myself so hard. <laughs> like I started cramping and stuff and she wanted to go all the way up Jamestown. And I was like, dude, I got to go back. Like I, I yeah. really messed up here. <laughs> it was like, I, I wasn't really recovering between efforts. So we parted ways um, and had a cracker of a day. Really, really went yeah. for it. And, uh, but uh, no, that that was kind of the the day as far as the announcement goes. So it was pretty funny. <laughs> that's that's a that's a cool story. And and uh, I mean, also the combination of like human emotion uh, combined with altitude, right? It's like you're riding yeah. that high, riding that high, and it's like you just don't recover as well up there, right? It's like, right. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And we're like talking so much. So then I wasn't eating as much, wasn't drinking as much and it all caught up by the end. Yeah. And then I bought, I just like hit a wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh. What, I mean, what, what an amazing, what an amazing journey. And you know, that journey, uh, you know, for all of us, we've mentioned crashes, we've mentioned the the pandemic and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you've had some significant challenges set before you um, and, and, you know, coming off of COVID and all this kind of stuff. I mean, what has been like your biggest challenge or challenges uh, during this whole Olympic pursuit? If you want to talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really just keeping focused. I think there was a lot of uncertainty, certainty last year and for a long time. Um, yeah. Like, what, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Are the games going to happen? Like, was everything that I was preparing for even worth it? Um, are we going to have races this year? Like there was a lot, going through my head and I think everyone's head just trying to sort everything out. Um, and luckily with time there, there became more certainty. Um, but yeah, but there was a period there for a while where I was like, well, I could just take a break, right? Like it would be cool if I just didn't have to ride or like, not sure why I'm riding. Or I asked my coach, like, is there like a hour goal at the end of the, of the week? And then I can just kind of break it up how I'm feeling on the day. You know, like if I feel like I just want to go smash four hours and take some QOMs, can I do that? Or can I just ride an hour because I just don't feel like riding and I'm not motivated? So tried to do that for a couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. And then I don't know if it was like self-induced or or it was actually allergies, but I'm norm- normally never home in April. I'm normally in Europe racing. And um, yeah, I just was coughing a lot outside, um, did a COVID test. It wasn't COVID. Um, yeah, just waking up like really stuffy. And so I went and saw an allergist and apparently I'm allergic to mold and dust mites. So cleaned up the whole place, got new sheets, mattress cover, everything. Um, tried some allergy meds, but it just made me really sleepy. So, but for a month there, I was kind of struggling with like how I was actually feeling in general. And then, um, yeah, on the bike, when I was outside, I would just be coughing the whole time. I like had a hard time getting through 45 minutes, um, without coughing like my lungs out. So yeah, I just kind of took it easy and day by day until I felt like my body was like kind of figuring out what was going on. So pretty much gave myself a break there in like March and April. Um, but when I first came home, I was like rolling pretty well and, took some QOMs before my body was just like, well, we're going to take a break here. So, <laughs> yeah. but I'd say yeah. that's like kind of the, the biggest hurdle. It was just like getting through the uncertainty. And I don't know if my body was like doing it to itself, but that whole thing. And then once like the calendar came out, 
when I was going back to Europe, then it was like, okay, work backwards from that. And then we start training again and getting back into it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, for a lot of people listening I mean, when you're, you know, you make, you make your money, you make the, Hey, you're, you're riding that, that dream and your, your body is that number one thing that makes it happen. And all of a sudden you have, you know, breathing issues for an endurance athlete. That's a big deal. That plays yeah. with you for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And from the creative, the creativity side of the coach, I mean, did you, did you enjoy like having a little bit more autonomy during that, um, like COVID time period to kind of control the, the training that you wanted to, or and how long did that last? Yeah, I think for me, I, I really needed that. Like I just kind of had to ride with my emotions really on how I was feeling on the day. Um, I think my coach had a little bit hard time with it. Um, just to like, how, how do we plan things? Um, but for me, that's just what I needed. And there were some days where I just wanted to go smash some, some QOMs. And then some days where I was like, I'm just going to do like three minutes <laughs> and just call it good. So, uh, I was like kind of all over the, all over the board when it came to how I felt about writing. Um, but I felt like I just needed to go with that so that I wasn't fighting myself on what I really wanted to do. Yeah. Super healthy, super healthy. And, and clearly, I mean, came out of that pretty good. The focus is there going good now. And, yeah. uh, here we go, here we go to Tokyo. So, um, you know, Tokyo is going to be one of the hottest Olympics projected, right. And it's humid there. So between like you and your coach, what considerations and what have you done in training to prepare for that heat and humidity that's about to come here? Yeah. So while I was at altitude camp, we did a, a handful of hot baths. Um, and then they're also normally after like kind of a harder, harder day. So body's kind of already run and depleted. And then I would get into a tub full of water at about 104 degrees. And the goal was 40 minutes. Um, and he was like, Oh, the goal is 40, but you know, most come out at 30 and it's totally up to you. But yeah, I'm not a loser. So I just went the full 40 and then just made sure I didn't stand up right away and get dizzy and pass out. <laughs> so I'm not a loser. Uh, I'm not a loser. <laughs> I did 41 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I actually did. So it was funny because uh, the last 10 minutes were, were more mental than it was physical. So I just played a meditation yeah. so I could get myself through it. And it was, uh, I had 10 minutes left. So I played a 10 minute meditation. And then when it was done, I checked my timer and it was like four, 40 minutes and 55 seconds. And I was like, Oh man, I could have gotten out of here like 55 <laughs> seconds ago. So I actually did do a minute over. Yeah. Well, uh, now you have a, f a credit. It's been recorded. Uh, the world knows. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. It's out there. But, uh, yeah, I, I did those hot baths and, um, yeah. So I did about five sessions of those. Um, and I found those to be really helpful. And also the training in Boulder was already pretty warm to begin with. Um, so that was another layer of, of heat and stress um, for, for me and my body to, to uh, try and get through. Yeah. And I mean, from, I'll ask the question and feel free to, to say, I don't know, but like, what was the end goal with the hot baths, especially post training? Like what was the goal of response to your body or psychologically or, or something like that? 
Um, yeah, I think the main goal is like to, to physically have my body in, in a similar stress as what um, Tokyo would be like. Um, yeah, just that hot, humid, uh, and just as much stress as possible that I could handle. Um, and also different forms. Like I was already at altitude. I already rode outside in the heat and I'm going to go hop in a hot bath. And my friends were like, are you sure this is okay? I was like, yeah, I'm doing this. (laughs) I'm going all the way. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think really just to push the limits and, and also not go over. So kind of still being in touch with yourself, like, okay, um, like I just drained the water and I just sat there and just didn't stand up right away and just kind of slowly cooled down and, and was like really careful with, with how I was moving afterwards since I had to really stress myself so much. Um, but I think also, yeah, the mental part of it is a big, big deal. Um, I think that'll definitely come into play. Um, you know, whether it's at Tokyo or next week at the Giro, which is typically also hot. So all these preparations kind of go hand in hand. And most of the people who are going to Tokyo are also doing the Giro as well. So, um, it's just kind of part of the the preparation process, but, um, yeah, uh, just doing, just basically even like going back to how my dad used to coach me, like, what are, what's the, what are the goals and what are the, the demands of that, the, you know, the event, and then to, to replicate that as best as possible, um, beforehand so that your body is used to it when, when you get there. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, I mean, for our listeners, you know, don't, don't go out, do a seven hour ride in the heat and then soft boil yourself here. This is not what we're, (laughs) what we're advocating, but, you know, so this, uh, um, this episode is in a, a series of the Tokyo lead up and, and I just recorded with Christopher Blevins who used a sauna protocol for some of his heat acclimatization and you can do, you know, you can do sauna, you can do uh, hot water, hot water baths. You can go out and train in the heat, you know, at, you know, not high intensities and all this kind of stuff, but that's, that's just it. Heat is a stress. You want to expose your body to that stress so that mentally and physically you're prepared for the day. And then, uh, also in this, um, series as well, Lindsay knowledge talks about how long it takes, you know, to get that done and really to your coach's side and in the rationale there is like, you know, it takes at least five days of exposure before you start to really see those gains. And then obviously since you were riding in the heat and then go beyond, uh, you have some more exposure to that. The plasma volume keeps on, uh, going right. And then you're training your body to just delay that core temperature escalation, you know? So it's, that's for our listeners. That's, that's what's going on, uh, throughout this, this, uh, athlete prep side of things and to do it at altitude right. too. I mean, that's, that's impressive. So. Yeah. It was some, some extra gains there. And obviously afterwards I went to to Knoxville for U.S. Pro Nationals um, a little bit early and to try to really expose myself to to real humidity. Um, and we had a few days there before Nationals that were just just crazy hot. Even like an hour spin was just like, what is going on? Like you feel like you're swimming. Um, yeah. And then also, I think the road race and the crit also were some pretty warmer days. Um, but then again, it's like a bit of balance because you also want to be prepared for the event. So it was like a balance with exposure and also getting enough rest and keeping your body cool so that you're ready for, for nationals. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And historically, I mean, how have your, how have your body responded to, um, hot races, heat and humidity? 
Um, I think if I prepare well, I end up doing pretty good at it. I remember for tour or um, when World Championships was in Qatar in October, I did um, mm-hmm. a sauna protocol for that. And training in SoCal in October is fire season, so it's pretty much really hot. <laughs> and then yeah. and then would hop in a sauna afterwards. So really similar um situation and then yeah when i got there it still is so extreme in qatar it, i feel like you're i could compare it to riding in front of a hair dryer it's just so hot and dry um yeah. but uh yeah i felt pretty okay at that event not not my best result um one of my earlier pro world championships but um yeah you know i felt like i did everything that i could to get ready for that kind of heat and i think if i if I didn't, um, it'd be a bit more of a, a shock for me. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, did you, um, did you have a test event over there or was that sidelined for COVID? Uh, we did not have a test event. I, I think there was one, um, but there was only a men's race or something and maybe only USAC staff went, but I don't think any athletes went. Gotcha. Okay. I was going to ask you how that how that felt, how that went and in that kind of thing. But, uh, I know COVID way laid a few things, but what is, uh, what's the Tokyo course like and, um, how stoked for it are you? I mean, does it, does it kind of like suit your riding style or, uh, what does it look like? Yeah. So there is going to be a total of 2,400 meters in elevation. Um, we're looking at 140 K in total. Um, I think 10, 10 K of that is neutral. And the first 60K is basically an average of 3%. Um, But I think it's a lot of groups of like 5K sections that are just like going up. And then it kind of comes down a little bit going up. But, you know, the average of that that section. And if you look at the profile, it just looks like it's going up for 60K. Um, And then you get over the pass and then you go kind of around this lake and then there's another climb before you drop into um, the Fuji sp- speedway. Um, and then you do a few laps or not, not laps, but you do a few, few smaller laps around there and then you finish on the speedway. So um, yeah, it's still, I believe 40 K to the speedway from uh the top of that 60k so it's still like a long time um whatever gets away on a long flat section um yeah and then the somewhat flat finish on the on the racetrack so i think it doesn't play to anyone specifically i think it it makes it an open race but uh definitely we'll have to survive um for for that first part and to get to the end will will be really important yeah yeah, absolutely. Sounds like you're the and, uh, perfect one for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm super stoked. I think we have a really good team going yeah. there. I mean, the Dutch are obviously really strong, um, yeah. but, and we're a bit of the underdogs, but uh, I think we'll, we won't go down without a fight and um, we'll uh, make them work for it or, or take it from them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I believe that for sure. I believe that for sure. So, you, you know, most, most of our listeners are not preparing for Tokyo, um, but it, they have a lot of big races coming up themselves too. Now that every, you know, the world's kind of getting back online. So uh, for those, you know, doing La Ruta or like Ironman Malaysia or something like this, hot, humid, epic things, like what's your advice for our listeners when they're prepping for an extreme environment like that? 
I'd say to try and replicate it as best as possible. Um, and because it is quite a shock to the system when uh, you, you like get to such an extreme environment and you're like, Oh man, I feel like I'm in a jungle or something, but if there's a way that you could, yeah, you know, do your homework, prepare and realize like what, what your goal environment's going to be like. And then, to try and replicate that and expose yourself to it beforehand um, will give you a, a one-up on, on everyone else. So I think uh, basically it just comes down to preparation. How, how well can you prepare for, for your goal? That's it. Yeah. And that specificity of stress, be it heat or altitude. I mean, that's, you know, the, the more exposure time you can get to that really it is, it is better just like you've been doing um, throughout the past couple of years here. So. Yeah, uh, well, exactly. as we were kind of bringing home the home stretch here, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, bike racing and all the stresses and, and this kind of thing, it needs balance too. And you've kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but to talk a little bit about not bike stuff, um, mm-hmm. and the whole traveling circus, that which it is, uh, it's a bit of a grind. So how do you unwind after a season or after an Olympic cycle or something like this? And, and what does your off season look like? Well, it kind of changes year to year, um, but after COVID and everything, um, my fiance and I thought like, oh, how cool would it be to have a, um, you know, a sprinter van and then we, we just build it out ourselves. So last October, once I got home, we looked at a few vans and picked one up and just start, started to put some work into it. And um, yeah, when we left in May for my altitude camp, uh, we drove out from California in the van and spent the full four weeks in the van um, with some plan B options. I think we, I had a heads up from my coach, like, Hey, you know, I don't know how the van's going to be, but you know, maybe look at some hotels or Airbnbs if, if it's not working for you, if your recovery is really bad. Um, but honestly, since October, um, and whenever I was home, we just put some work into the van and I've learned that I'm pretty decent electrician and plumber and Nate mm-hmm. is a pretty good woodworker. So, some skills on the side. Um, we literally have done everything on our own, haven't had to hire anyone. And, um, we have our bed lofted and we have some overhead cabinets and we have running water and we have 400 Watts of solar. Um, we have a fridge and everything that we need. And we survived my altitude camp fairly comfortably, I'd say. And, uh, never, never thought about, you know, going to an Airbnb or anything. I think we had everything we needed and, um, yeah, everything was pretty comfy. So, uh, live in the van life. Uh, what kind of uh, comfort foods or comfort drinks do you guys uh, whip up in, in in the van when you're on the road like that? Then, um, I think when it comes to comfort food, that's normally um, I always bring some stuff to to Europe. Um, just random things that like remind me of home. Like if I'm like, I don't know, don't know what to eat, or I'm just bored, or I'm feeling a little homesick, like. Love a random bag of goldfish and mac and cheese, like craft mac and cheese, um, some cheese. It's like really just like kid random stuff. But um, yeah. yeah, I think that just kind of reminds me of home and it's just like easy to make and it always tastes good. So can't complain. <laughs> cheeses, cheeses are some of my favorite too. Just a, a side secret on there. Yeah. <laughs> are, Sour are Patch Kids, the- stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and is that kind of like the same stuff that you crave, say, like in the off season too, or is that just, or is that year round comfort food? 
that's definitely like a year-round thing. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> if I don't know what to eat or something, just whip up some quake mac and cheese or whatever. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like really easy. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not too picky when it comes to food. Like I'm not like a crazy health freak. Um, and definitely don't like too many sweets. I err more on like the, the savory side. Like when I'm done with a race, like I would just love a bag of chips or something. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's just kind of what I gravitate towards too when it comes to comfort yeah. food. See folks, you don't always have to be like laser sharp dialed nerdy thing to be a high performer. Proofs no. in the pudding that one. <laughs> um, so finally, like, how do you, how do you keep it fun? I mean, you've won all the things and, you know, we talked about, uh, kind of racing and training with a purpose, but, uh, how do you do that after so many years of racing at a high level? Yeah. Um, I think I just kind of switch it up a lot. Um, yeah, you mentioned at the beginning, I do tend to, to shred every now and then on the mountain bike. So mm -hmm. I like to get a little gnarly every now and then. And, um, yeah, our mutual friend, like Jason, Jason Blodgett and, um, Nate as well, my fiance, I think will yeah, Nate can ride too. Yeah. So every now and then we'll uh Jason will come out and we'll go do some trails by us and just go rip around and I think I could I'm an above average roadie doing above average mountain bike riding, <laughs> technically. So um I that's also a nice way for me to like keep my skills up as well. So do a bit of mountain biking in, in the wintertime. Yeah, exactly. Um and like I said on Blevins' podcast, it's, it's not which bike, it's all the bikes. That's that's the yeah. answer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, Corinne, we covered a lot today and I've I've learned more about you as a person, as a rider, and uh, now the world knows, you know, how one of the best in the world actually does it on, on this stage like this. So, uh, before you go, I mean, this, this kind of is probably going toward uh, some of our younger listeners out there, but... Um, last question is, you know, for those aspiring to, for those big dreams or for that, that Olympic, uh, goal, whether they are young or they pick the, the bike up later in the later in life, I mean, what would you say for those just kind of dreaming big and wondering if they can actually do it or not? Um, I'd say to just keep it fun. I mean, you have to enjoy it to, to put yourself through all the hard things and difficult things. So um, if you're not having fun and you're making it difficult for yourself, I don't think you'll, you'll get very far. So you have to find that you do love it and there is a reason why you love it and that you're enjoying it. And, um, and that's what helps get you through all the harder stuff too and pushes you further. Yes, indeed. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, Corinne, thank you so much again for being part of the train, right? Podcast. Uh, good luck at the upcoming races and good luck in Tokyo. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. I uh, had a great time on the show and chatting away with you. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on the Trainwright Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainwright.com forward slash podcast, where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart train right.